So this is the final message of this uh, mini-series on cultural humility. And you saw a recap there of the introductory message, which encouraged us to humbly listen before we speak. But Ecclesiastes 3, 7 does tell us that there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. And so last week, Paul covered more how we speak into the culture. And then before that, Ellie gave us the, the theological foundation and biblical unpacking of reconciliation, both the message of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation in our culture, including the exhortation to act reconciled, uh, which I loved. And that, was a special, that message was initially for this uh, Sunday, but we had to move it around. And so today I want to close our series by applying what we've learned to situations in the church, in relationships, and in the world. And so how to engage others in love, sort of starting inside the church and then working our way out. And so practicing uh, theological humility, relational humility, and missional humility. So we'll start in here, and then we'll work our way out. So first, starting with uh, theological humility. So if we're going to be culturally humble with our thoughts and opinions, we better start by practicing it first within the church and with each other, right? We've been, uh, I think, you know, taught and trained in our world that we need to have an opinion on everything and everyone, and that includes theological matters. Uh, of course, people on radio talk shows and podcasts and news uh, shows and blogs are paid a lot of money to offer immediate opinions and knee-jerk reactions without having to actually think through or research an issue. And that's how, you know, social media works as well, that we need to offer our immediate opinion or reaction, or feel like we need to, on something. And that's often how we approach uh, theological issues sometimes as well. But can I just uh, say something, and hopefully it comes as a bit of a relief. God is not calling you to be an expert or have an opinion on every topic. Oh, good. Including biblical theological issues, and that's okay. There are biblical topics such as predestination versus free will, or end time events, and many more that Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians have studied for centuries and not come to the same conclusions or any conclusion at all. And that should give us some pause before we quickly offer a strong opinion on something that is obviously very complex and difficult, and perhaps that we haven't spent a lot of time researching. So here's kind of a word of advice, is that it's actually okay to simply say, I don't know. Because the Bible doesn't answer every question in a systematic, easy fashion. That was God's choice. And we're drawn to simple answers to complex questions, including theological ones, which tends to, you know, kind of put us into camps and to divide us and make us retreat into corners with people who think just like us. And theology is often just a lot messier than that. 
uh, Canadian theologian John Stackhouse uh, outlines three kinds of legitimate I don't knows in theological conversation. So there's some things where it might be okay to say I don't know. Number one, he says, is you know enough about a subject to know that you'll never fully understand it. I think a good example here would be uh, heaven and hell and eternal life. Does the, does the Bible affirm the reality? Absolutely, right? It's absolutely and always clear that they exist. But is it always clear exactly what they're like, what they are, what's meant to be taken literally, and what's symbolic? Well, if you study it, it's actually pretty complex, somewhat purposely lacking in detail which is why you have different interpretations throughout history and different opinions within evangelical thought. And so sometimes you've studied something enough to know that you actually uh, won't fully understand it, and you kind of almost eventually come to the conclusion, which is again a relief to say like, I guess I don't really need to know all the details about this thing. The second kind of I don't know that uh, there might be is, I don't know because it's not my calling to know. Most of us, our, va our vocation is not to be the theological answer man or woman. Uh, it's legitimate for us to just say, we don't know. And, you know, we might have opinions, but we're just not really sure. God hasn't called us to maybe set aside months or years of our life to study a, a certain subject. And, you know, so is it a literal uh, six-day creation or simply a poetic literary construct meant to communicate larger theological truths. Tough to say if you're not maybe a Hebrew scholar or expert in ancient Near Eastern literature and poetry. And then third kind of I don't know is I hope to know or plan to know, uh, but just haven't had a really a chance to quite look into that yet. Uh, so just to plug for next week, uh, Hannah and I are going to tackle some complex questions about uh, male-female relationships and marriage, such as uh, submission and headship subjects, where you might feel like, you know, I, I feel like I plan to figure that out at some point, what the Bible says, and I think I can come to a conclusion, but I just kind of need to do some more study on what the Bible actually says, not just what I think uh, it might say or, or want it to say. So here's a great way to approach theological humility, and you've probably heard this before, right? That in the essentials, there does need to be unity among us. In the non-essentials, there should be some liberty among us. But of course, in all things, there needs to be love and charity among us. So we have a document uh, that we ascribe to. It's called the Statement of Essential Truths. And basically, these are essentials that we more or less want to be unified on as a church, such as the Bible is true and trustworthy, right? We don't believe that this is a bunch of made-up fairy tale stories. It's true and it's trustworthy. God created the heavens and the earth. That's kind of an essential. God is the creator. But how he did it is more of a non-essential, right? There's a little bit of liberty in what we might think about that. That's why our statement doesn't say, we believe God created the earth in six literal days. He very well may have. I personally have no problem believing that. 
but is it essential we have to agree on? No, not really. And essential is that Jesus is coming again. Amen? How and when exactly that will take place is a non-essential, right? Thoughts on tribulations or lack of or end-time timetables are simply not clear in the Bible and so should be approached more humbly. Our focus should be on Jesus will return. Are we ready? More than what potential events might all lead up to that, which doesn't always transform our behavior. So the, the statement of essential truths, uh, you can find it on the belief section of our website. You can also read the, the commentary ebook for free, which is also linked on the belief section of our website. Uh, but we have a hard copy in the library there in the theology section, or you can borrow this one if you want to say, hey, what are kind of the essentials, uh, the things I really want to focus on? So focus on the essentials first. And so we need to practice theological humility within the church realizing we can't know everything, and there is liberty in the non-essentials, and some things truly only God knows. Personally, I'm okay with that. But here's why this is important, why I kind of took some time to unpack that, is that hopefully practicing that humility within the church, with each other, will translate into how we live outside the church and will lead to relational humility. I don't need to convince you that we live in a world of kind of division and fractured relationships. A lot of us have experienced this, whether you know through issues like uh, COVID or other social hot button issues where people retreat more and more into groups who share uh, their opinions or value uh, uh, the same things they do and kind of otherize uh, to use a term that I just made up, everyone else, which is dangerous. And I know many of you experience uh, the pain of, of fractured relationships with family and friends over issues. And part of the reason for this intense division is that, as uh, journalist Nicholas Kristof says, you know, that we no longer all get the same daily news. Instead, we get the daily me, Right? We get a Facebook or Google feed that gives us information and news based on things we already think, what we like and are prone to read, which just reinforces then our own thoughts that we're right and everyone else is wrong and divides us into camp and produces dogmatism and arrogance about what we think and outrage toward anyone who might think differently. So the question is, as believers, how can we do better in our relationships? This is a huge topic, and I only have time to give a few nuggets to kind of chew on and take with you, but I hope they help. And the first one is to choose reconciliation over winning. In other words, choose winning someone over in relationship over winning in argument. Because here's the truth. Heated conversations do not change people's minds. So choose a better way. Be like God who, as Luke 6.35 says, is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. That sounds hard. People are more important than winning. 
Second, don't magnify grievances. Magnify grace. I believe it's uh, Christian author Parker Palmer who says that sometimes we just have to enter into relationship or conversation or a situation kind of with this attitude or role that, you know, I'm just going to enter into this moment or whatever it is with no fixing, no advising, no setting each other straight. And I'm just going to not do those things right now. In other words, offer grace more than judgment, and you just might find that it's more transformational. And here's why this relational humility can be, can be so rewarding and freeing. And I'm always working at this in my life, but I find it's just so freeing when I really lean into it, is entrusting judgment into God's hands frees us to love without reservation, which is hopefully where we want to be. Meaning it doesn't have to be our job to set everyone straight because that's God's job. Scripture says it like this in Romans 12. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. So we're not saying there is no such thing as judgment. It's just not ours to give. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord's going to take care of it. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I find when you put this into practice, it actually works. Shocking, I know, God's word is true. Whoa. I mean, when there's someone I'm at odds with, or, you know, we're just, we're not seeing eye to eye, we're having kind of some trouble. I really have two choices, right? I can ruminate on that, and I can let the offense grow bigger and bigger in my head. I can begin to make them the enemy, think of all the things I'm going to say to prove how bad they are. Or I can say, God, this is tough, but I leave it in your hands. Show me how I can love and bless them. And when I do that, and I'm not saying I always do it well, but suddenly, instead of being overcome with resentment, anger, or bitterness, which honestly, who likes that? God slowly releases those feelings, and He begins to replace them with something better. I mean, it might be something as little as, I see something in the grocery store that I know uh, this person really likes, and I'm at odds with them. And I buy it for them and I say, hey, I just thought of you when I saw this, right? And it might be hard to do, but I find that it just breaks down barriers in my heart when I do that. And sometimes in theirs, but again, that's up to the Lord. So if I give you something, it's not because something's wrong. I do it for friends too, okay? I love all of you and uh, I don't have any, we're not at odds as far as I know. Don't you want to feel that freedom just to love the other? You can. But it doesn't come by just wanting it more. It's through the transformational grace of Jesus. And there's such freedom in knowing it's not necessarily my job to straighten everyone out. 
to make sure every wrong done to me is pointed out and paid for, that every grievance is mentioned and magnified. Like Jesus on the night before his death, sitting with his disciples, who, by the way, have a bunch of wrong ideas about who he is and about really the world in general. But what does Jesus do? Does he sit them down and give them a talking to? Does he tell them all the ways they're wrong? He washes their feet. That's how he corrects them, by showing them a better way. And so we know that nothing we do for another person, no act of love, whether toward an enemy or a friend, is ever beneath something Jesus would do for that person. Let me say that again. Nothing we do for another person is ever beneath something Jesus would do for that person. And that leads us into our last point, which is missional humility. Out there. The subtitle to this series is Engaging Our World in Love, for that is the goal and application of this series, to create lovers of our world, people who would rather wash feet than wave flags, bless rather than curse, forgive rather than fight, lovers of God and lovers of people. And that's something I've been praying for a lot lately, not just laborers for the kingdom, I pray for those according to Luke 10 too, but lovers. As you may know, uh, Tim Keller recently died, a pastor in New York City, and uh, I read a great article by Mike Cosper about Keller and his church and how they served their city. And Keller said that, you know, in a city or community, uh, you have all kinds of people that are there uh, for all kinds of reasons, right? Some are there by choice, some are there kind of by force, some are there to retire, some are there to work, some are there because it's the only place they could buy a home, whatever it might be. But Keller says, in order to really reach and impact a community as a church, you need most of all lovers, people who will love all the other people who are there for all kinds of different reasons. To reach a place, he says, we need to pray that God would bring lovers who are not there for their own agendas, but rather to fulfill the purpose of God. He says, lovers will care about the streets. They'll care about public safety. They'll care about schools. They'll care about the plausibility of the church's witness. And they'll stay. They'll dig roots and devote a life to something greater. He goes on to say that in a church, if you don't love the people around you in the community, you'll never last. That goes for the drug dealers downtown, the people who vandalize your building, or in our case, constantly steal our rugs and flower planters outside, the angry progressives picketing your events. The moment these people become an obstacle to you, rather than the reason you are there in the first place, then you've lost your way. I don't want to lose my way. 
And I think it's one of the reasons Jesus asks us to regularly come to this table so that we don't lose our way. It's His way of saying, remember what you're called to, church. Remember how I gave myself for you, how I gave myself even for my enemies. Remember that I came not to be served by our world, but to serve our world. We have to be regular reminded, regularly reminded of the all-important truth that Jesus laid down His life for others, including His enemies, including those who disagreed with Him, who didn't get Him, who wronged Him, including us. So what's the key to cultural humility? Well, it's Christ's humility, which is this, Philippians 2, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, which is what? That he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So as we prepare to come to this table, let's remember our humble Savior.